0: Welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. I'm Michael Sleesman, Managing Director and Research Scholar at the Center. In this edition of the Bioethics Podcast, we bring you the next in a series of parallel papers presented at our 2010 annual conference, Beyond Therapy, Exploring Enhancement and Human Futures. In this paper, Patrick T. Smith, MDiv, MA, PhD candidate, Sinks to expand the end of life issues surrounding killing versus letting die by exploring issues of intentionality and the withholding and withdrawal of treatment. Mr. Smith's presentation is entitled Taking Another Stab Rethinking the Killing versus Letting Die Distinction for the Euthanasia Debate. First, though, an announcement that CBHD is now accepting proposals for paper presentations at our upcoming 2011 Summer Conference, The Scandal of Bioethics, Reclaiming Christian Influence in Technology, Science, and Medicine. For more information regarding the upcoming Summer Conference or guidelines regarding the call for papers, please visit our website at www.cbhd.org forward slash scandal.
1: Good afternoon. The paper I want to do this uh, afternoon is uh, simply entitled Taking Another Stab Rethinking the Killing uh, versus Letting Die Distinction for the Physician Assisted Suicide or Euthanasia Debate, uh, more broadly speaking. This presentation is an exercise in Christian moral philosophy with application to Christian bioethics, so I will interact somewhat with conceptual issues regarding ethical theory and then make the turn to applying this admittedly introductory theoretical work to applied Christian ethics. It is not primarily an exercise in theological reflection, though my theological outlook does affect my thinking with respect to moral philosophy and applied Christian bioethics. Is there a distinction between killing and letting die? The question appears to be a simple and straightforward one that requires a simple response of either yes or no. However, upon analysis and the reading of some of the ethical and philosophical literature on the subject, things may not be as straightforward as it initially seems. For many, the question is not a trivial one. It stands between the moral permissibility and impermissibility of euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. Distinguished medical ethicist and opponent of euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide Daniel P. Sulmacy states, an important component of the argument against physician-assisted suicide." has been a defense of the distinction between killing and allowing to die," end quote. Alternatively, Michael Tooley and the late James Rachels, both very capable philosophers and outspoken proponents of euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide, do not see a morally relevant distinction between killing and letting die in general. They then take what they uh, think to be a general point and apply it to the specific issue of euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide, such that if it is morally acceptable for physicians to allow patients to die in certain circumstances, physicians ought to be allowed equally to hasten patients' deaths in certain prescribed situations. Others maintain that there may well be a relevant difference between killing and letting die, who still nevertheless maintain that the distinction is, to quote Tom Beacham and a proponent of physician-assisted suicide, quote, fatally flawed as a means of treating the major problems of physician-assisted death that face medicine and society today, End quote. Not only do some proponents of physician-assisted suicide who think that while there may be a relevant distinction between killing and letting die, it is still nevertheless irrelevant for the physician-assisted suicide debate, but also some opponents of physician-assisted suicide suggest this as well. This certainly seems to be the case with theologian and medical ethicist Paul Ramsey, When he writes, in order to think straight about the question of the morality of euthanasia, I want first of all to convince you that you do not need to learn that while to kill someone directly or with direct intention is damnable, you are excusable if you kill someone only indirectly or with indirect voluntariness. You do not need to deploy such subtleties as saying you are accountable for another's death if you were the active agent of it, but not accountable if you were passive while the death occurred. These distinctions may be important to take up in other connections, but neither separately nor together do they serve to solve or dissolve or even to clarify the question of euthanasia. They serve only to confuse moral discourse, yet it seems nearly impossible to dislodge such language." End quote. The differences of opinion highlighted here from prominent ethicists working on this topic and the various applications or lack thereof made from these opinions to the euthanasia physician-assisted suicide debate reveal that there is still much more conversation to be had surrounding this issue. I must hasten to admit that in a brief paper in a setting like this, I dare not presume that what I have to say will come close to resolving many of the issues involved in this discussion. Instead, my aim is much more modest. I want to argue that it does not seem that it is absolutely necessary that Christian ethicists must affirm there is a morally relevant distinction between killing and letting die in and of itself, by itself, understood as a broad, abstract, or perhaps better, generic moral principle. Now, this is not to say that there are no situations where killing and letting die are morally distinct, for in fact there are many. This is especially true when it comes to the specific context of healthcare in treating imminently dying patients. These are the scenarios that most Christians often have in mind when thinking about this question. The problem is that the scenarios of terminally ill patients or the imminently dying that are discussed in the end-of-life biomedical ethical cases do not exhaust all the possible categories of situations in which the moral relevance or lack thereof of the killing-letting-die distinction is applied. This is why I want to say that the context and the details of the specific case in which the distinction is being considered gives insight into how we are to morally assess the actions of individuals in question or the given state of affairs. So let us return again to our opening question Is there a moral distinction between killing and letting die? It is reasonable to think that those holding to a Christian anthropology and holding to the doctrine of the sanctity of life in some form or other, would affirm, perhaps unequivocally, that there is. While I am a Christian, and I do hold to a form of the sanctity of life doctrine, nevertheless, I think that in order for us to answer the question effectively, we need to ask more questions so that we are clear as to the assumptions underlying the question and the context in which it is being asked. G.E. Moore. Noticed long ago in doing ethics, quote, the difficulties and disagreements of which his history is full are mainly due to a very simple cause, namely to the attempt to answer questions without first discovering precisely what question it is you which you desire to answer, quote. I think he is correct in this regard. He goes on to say that philosophers, quote, are constantly endeavoring to prove that yes or no will answer questions to which neither answer is correct, owing to the fact that what they have before their minds is not one question, but several, to some of which the true answer is no, to others yes." I think that when I read the literature on this topic, it seems to me this is what is happening. There are times and scenarios where I do not think that there is a relevant moral difference between killing and letting die. Most of us are by now acquainted with the well-known and widely used examples given by James Rachels back in 1975 when he asks us to consider two scenarios, one with Smith one with Jones, who both stand to inherit a lot of money if their six-year-old cousins die. So they both decide to intentionally kill the cousins, both wait until they are going to take a bath. Smith holds the child's head underwater, thereby killing him. Jones, in the second case, sees his cousin slip and hit his head and laying face down in the water. He was entering the bathtub. Jones watches his cousin drown to death. Rachel suggests, and I actually agree with him on, on this score, that both Jones and Smith's actions are morally reprehensible, albeit for different reasons, perhaps, and each are morally blameworthy. Rachel's then wants to move this insight to the euthanasia debate. Now, I think we can accept his assessment in the Smith-Jones case, but are under no philosophical obligation to accept the application of his claim in the euthanasia debate for reasons I will attempt to spell out below. At other times, the cases seem to be so clear that there is a moral distinction that one would think it is odd that the question is even being asked. For example, if there is no moral distinction between killing and letting die, then it would seem that we would be just as morally blameworthy for sending poisoned food to starving children in another country, in other words, killing them, as we would by not sending any food to them at all and just kind of letting them die. And we will be just as morally blameworthy in both cases. But this seems to stretch credulity, at least to me it does. It seems to me that the question, is there a moral distinction between killing and letting die, is an ill-formed one. So following more... I want to suggest that perhaps what we have before us is not one question, but several. Here I want to quickly highlight and briefly answer a few other questions that I hope will clarify my claim. Now, this section is necessarily a broad sketch of answers to, the, to these questions that I'm gonna pose, and, and they do require much more detailed and philosophical precision of argument and whatnot, but nevertheless, let's just kinda of get to it here. The first question, is killing always morally wrong? But I do think the traditional biblical Christian ethic has always held to a strong prima facie or at first glance or straightforward pro- prohibition against killing human beings. I take it that murder is always morally wrong, whereas killing may not necessarily be. Some, for example, think that while tragic and certainly not ideal, there may be times in which one might use lethal force if no other reasonable alternatives are available to preserve one's life or someone else's. Another potential instance where killing may be morally justifiable is in the case of soldiers who are participating in a just war. Much more controversially are issues of capital punishment, say. Of course there are some who would debate each of these, yet in my mind at least two of these three examples are much less controversial and I think fairly decent arguments can be marshaled in favor of them. So it is not clear that it is always wrong to kill human beings. It would be easier to answer the question, is there a moral distinction between killing and letting die, if it were the case that killing is always morally wrong and letting die always morally right? If this were the case, then we have clear and tidy categories into which the discussions fall. So if there is ever an instance of killing, we can prescribe it to the category of being morally wrong. If there is an instance of letting die, then we could put it in the category of being morally right, or morally permissible, probably is better. This is simply not the case, however. Even if one held to an absolute prohibition against killing human beings for any reason whatsoever, we can still envision scenarios where letting someone die would, in the opinion of most, be tantamount to killing as in the case with James, uh, Rachel's case with, with Jones, who allowed his young cousin to die. This is also true with respect to the healthcare context too. As one distinguished Christian ethicist has correctly noted, quote, allowing a patient to die or letting a patient die are often considered to be morally different from killing. Correctly labeling an act as allowing to die does not tell us whether the act is morally justified. If, for example, an individual whose life could have been saved in an emergency room is knowingly and deliberately allowed to die, such an action would be morally akin to an unjustified killing, given the moral and legal obligations to treat in such circumstances. If all of this is correct, then this betrays any tidy categories of killing being morally wrong and letting die being morally right that we could ever hope to make since there will be instances of letting die that we would consider the agent is being morally blameworthy for, and situations where killing that could be morally justifiable. In sum, the answer to question number one is: Killing human beings always morally wrong. The response here is that it is not always wrong, though there remains a strong prima facie prohibition against it. So the operative moral principle here is something like: It is always wrong to kill a human being without sufficient moral justification. Second question then is. Why is killing wrong when it is wrong? Time limitations prohibit me from giving some of the specific details of the contrasting views of others that provide varying accounts of the wrongness of killing when it is wrong. In general, many of these alternative views are based on some form of what's called a harm principle. The upshot for those who base this wrongness of killing on a harm principle is that it allows for the possibility that in some cases bringing on death by one's self or with the assistance of others would not be considered harmful to the person and actually in some cases may be a benefit. Hence it can be morally permissible for a person to choose death as a means and an end. A harm-based account of the wrongness of killing when it is wrong clearly opens the door for the moral permissibility of physicians to suicide and actually it can open the door for them mor- uh, b- being morally obligatory giving certain contextual features. This is to be contrasted with the view that I prefer concerning the wrongness of killing when it is wrong. The view is based on a Judeo-Christian ethic and firmly rooted in homicide law. Regarding the former, life is ultimately a gift from God, intrinsically sacred, given that human beings are in the image of God. Unlawful and morally unjustified killing is a violation of this precious gift, and is to treat that which is sacred in ignoble ways. A view of human life is also embedded in homicide law. On this point, the thinking of Arthur Dyke is insightful here. He notes three major reasons why killing is wrong when it is wrong in relation to homicide law. First, killing is a violation of an individual's inalienable right to life. Second, killing runs counter to a human being's natural love of life. Third, killing violates the sanctity of life. Concerning this last point, which is most explicitly and most naturally well-suited with the view from a Judeo-Christian ethics, Arthur Dyke writes, quote, that a human life is sacred means that the worth of it is beyond calculation. One can glean this from what is said about the sanctity of life in law. An individual's life is to be protected as having incalculable worth, being hopelessly ill or fatally wounded or being one for whom life has in various ways become a burden does not qualify, that is, does not reduce the law's interest in preserving life. This interest is not diminished in any way by the medical condition and the wishes of the one whose life is at stake. Dyke also believes that his description of the wrongness of killing when it is wrong, based in homicide law, is compatible with using lethal force given the responsibilities of the community and the common good to ultimately protect life. He thinks, quote, the moral basis of homicide law is preserved, not eroded, by permitting killing in specified exceptional circumstances such that the killing in question upholds the purpose of homicide law, namely the protection of innocent life, end quote. The third question I think that needs to be before us in helping us answer or at least understand our original question is is physician assisted suicide an, instant, an instance of killing when killing is wrong okay? is physician assisted suicide an instance of killing when killing is wrong based on the description of the wrongness of killing previously stated it does not take much to see that it is here i understand the term physician assisted suicide to mean A form of euthanasia where healthcare professionals intentionally terminate their patients or aim to hasten their deaths by act or omission, which is considered by those who practice it as an act of mercy when it is perceived that the patient's quality of life has deteriorated to a point that is unacceptable or as an expression and fulfillment of patient autonomy when it is requested by one who is gravely ill very broad, and there are reasons why it's that comprehensive in nature, at least for my purposes. Though the Christian tradition's resistance to forms of euthanasia may not be uniform, there are nevertheless significant theological, historical, and philosophical resources that can be drawn from Christian thought to suggest Christians ought to be opposed to the practice of physician-assisted suicide. I want to maintain that while we may not be able to impugn the motive of people who engage in such practices, these activities are, nevertheless, incompatible with the strong prima facie duty to preserve and protect life, and is inconsistent with genuine compassion and legitimate expressions of love and care for our fellow human beings. Which leads to our next question. Fourth, is the withdrawing and withholding of treatment an instance of killing when it is wrong? In keeping with the general thrust of my description of physician-assisted suicide and the wrongness of killing when it is wrong, it depends on what the intention of the action is and the reasons given in favor of what those reasons are. In the description I provided of physician-assisted suicide, a form of euthanasia, one can engage in it not only by some act, say, but also by the deliberate withholding of a given treatment if the intention is to kill the patient. In the words of the ethicist John Keown, who is also an opponent of physician suicide, quote, if what characterizes euthanasia is an intention to kill, it surely makes no moral difference if the doctor carries out the intention by an omission rather than by an act. Consequently, it is the case that a healthcare professional, quote uh, again, who switches off a ventilator or who withdraws a patient's tube feeding performs euthanasia if by doing so he or she intends to hasten the death of the patient. Though I am unable to expand on this complex issue here, intentions do matter in moral assessment. As someone once stated, how do we know the difference between a bribe say and a gift? Often it boils down to the notion of the intention of the agent in performing some act. On the other hand, there are situations in the process of dying where there is a legal right, and it is morally appropriate to either refuse treatment or to discontinue some current treatment. Though mathematical precision cannot be had uh, with respect to determining exactly when this is the case, there are a couple of helpful, widely accepted criteria that can be used. First, a treatment may be refused if it is useless, okay, or was sometimes called futile care. As Christian ethicist Gilbert Mylander. Uh, has described this, quote, the criterion is especially important when a person is in the last stages of dying. We should note, however, that to be irretrievably dying is not the same as to be terminally ill. One can be terminally ill, but still be expected to live for months or even years. For the patient who is irretrievably dying, few if any treatments can really be useful. Continued attempts to cure such a patient may well get in the way of the effort to cure for this person the best we can. In any case, no one is obligated to pursue treatments that are not expected to be helpful. And to refuse such treatment is exactly that, a refusal of treatment, not the rejection of the gift of life. It is not killing, but allowing to die. The other criterion, is when a life-saving treatment becomes excessively burdensome. It means that we might rightly refuse even useful treatment that would prolong our life for a significant period of time if that treatment really does carry with it significant burdens. Uh, So says Gilbert Mylander. Again, to reject or withdraw treatment because of its burdens is still a refusal of treatment, not a refusal of life. This I want to urge is the context in which we see that there is a moral distinction between killing and letting die, in keeping with my overall claim. In response to this fourth question, is the withholding withdrawal of treatment an instance of killing when killing is wrong? I want to say under these kinds of circumstances, refusal of treatment is not an instance of the wrongness of killing when it is wrong. To go back to Gilbert Mailander, quotes an unlikely source in George Orwell in giving an apt description of the Christian vision of the meaning of life and death in a fallen world when he writes, the Christian attitude towards death is not that it is something to be welcomed or that it is something to be met with stoical indifference, or that it is something to be avoided as long as possible, but that it is something profoundly tragic which has to be gone through with. A Christian, I suppose, if he were offered the chance of everlasting life on this earth, would refuse it, but he would still feel that death is profoundly sad." Mylander goes on to comment on Orwell's observations by rightly noting that, quote, "...this vision of the world and of the meaning of life and death has within Christendom given guidance to those reflecting on human suffering and dying. That moral guidance has amounted to the twofold proposition that Though we might properly cease to oppose death while aiming at other choice-worthy goods in life, we ought never to aim at death as our ends or our means. To be sure, we have a strong duty to protect and preserve life as it is a very good gift from God, and we are to be good stewards of it. It is also true that our human existence is not the greatest good on a Christian understanding of things. Christians must take care to avoid two extremes. On one hand, it must be kept in mind to respect life, is not to embrace vitalism, which is an extreme view that claims human existence this side of the new heavens and new earth is an absolute good, and as such, it must be preserved at all costs, regardless of the condition of the patient or the person. There is a time to die. On the other hand, we ought not intentionally hasten nor assist others in doing so, the death of human beings without sufficient moral justification. Comfort-only care, which is always appropriate, stands between these two extremes of vitalism and euthanasia. Paul Ramsey provides an insightful description of this for us, and so I think it is appropriate to quote him at length when he writes, When a doctor says there is nothing more to be done, he means, in context, there is nothing more to be done to cure or to save this particular life, not... Nothing more to be done except to switch to inaction, passivity, omission, refraining. It is entirely misleading to call decisions to cease curative treatment, negative euthanasia. They are part of good medicine and always have been. The cessation of curative treatment is followed immediately by an exceedingly active practice of medicine involving commissions of many sorts in caring for the dying. We choose rather to care for the still living dying, that is, affirmative action on the highest order. One refrains, of course, from what is formerly the needed curative treatment, but that is promptly replaced by the now needed caring treatment. The latter policy is as active as the former. Both serve life and neither chooses death as ends or means." End quote. So by way of conclusion, I think our original question, is there a moral distinction between killing and letting die, cannot be effectively answered without a context in which it is placed. So therefore, I don't think that there is an absolute necessary moral distinction between the two in every situation. On a Christian ethic, there are times when instances of killing and letting die are both wrong. There are times when allowing people to die is sometimes right. Killing when it is in the form of physician-assisted suicide, on my account, is always wrong, but the refusal of treatment is sometimes right. All of this suggests to me that the question is much more nuanced than it appears. Further, we need to be careful how we use the language. I think that it is unwise and perhaps unhelpful to the discussion to maintain a necessary moral distinction between the two as an absolute. We need to be careful that we do not paint ourselves in a corner and lose credibility, dare I say clarity, on the theoretical side of the discussion by denying consequences that seem to be in keeping with our common sense moral intuitions. This is just a start, of course. There is much more that would need to be said and defended. Again, I'm just trying to take another stab at a seemingly moving target.
0: That was Taking Another Stab, Rethinking the Killing versus Letting Die Distinction for the Euthanasia Debate, by Patrick T. Smith, MDiv, MA, Ph.D. Candidate. Mr. Smith is Assistant Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and Ethics Coordinator at Angela Hospice Care Center in Michigan. A print version of this abstract is available on our website at cbhd.org. The Bioethics Podcast is a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the center and to support the work of the center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website at cbhd.org. My name is Michael Sleesman, and I'm the Managing Director and Research Scholar of the center. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast.